So Money episode 99, Zach Bissonette. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Hey everyone, welcome back to So Money. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Today's guest is the best selling author of the recent book, The Great Beanie Baby Bubble, and two other highly acclaimed bestsellers, which he wrote before his 24th birthday Debt Free You and How to Be Richer, Smarter, and Better Looking Than Your Parents. He has contributed to the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, the Daily Beast, and Bloomberg, among others. He was also the editor of The Warman's Guide to Antiques and Collectibles, a contributing editor with Antique Trader, and he is Zach Bissonette. Three takeaways from our time with Zach. Key personal financial lessons from the great Beanie Baby craze. You don't want to miss this. His biggest financial regret and why he likes to donate to libraries. I love that. Here is Zach Bissonette. Zach Bissonette, welcome to So Money, my friend. It's been a while. Thanks so much for having me. I, you and I, we've been friends for a while now. We we both started in the financial journalism world. You were in college working in financial news, and so you were far ahead of the curve than some of us other journos. You've had really um, storied career. Uh, I just gave this robust introduction of you with all your credits. And more recently, you've now launched a fantastic book that sort of is not so much in the personal finance uh, section of Barnes and Nobles, but um, <laughs> it's called it's called The Great Beanie Baby Bubble. And I think you and I are both of the generation, of the, the Beanie Baby generation. I, my younger brother as well had like a massive collection. That story, few people know about. Actually, the story of how the business ultimately went away. What happened to the the fat, like sort of the, the brain behind it? Why? What brought you to be so fascinated by it and wanted to actually write a book about it? No, I mean the the it's, it's funny that the beanie craze was kind of my first introduction to the weirdness of speculative capitalism. So I I was in middle school when this thing hit, and I was kind of a weird kid, and I was very into uh, flea markets and, and antique stores and that kind of thing, and I. When I was in middle school, I sold rare books on eBay that I would buy at yard sales. And so my mother and I would go to this Dick and Ellie's flea market on Cape Cod in Massachusetts where I grew up every weekend. And no one knew what Beanie Babies were. And then all of a sudden, this flea market became like 20% or 30% Beanie Baby dealers. And they had the most crowded booths. And I remember them with these like – they had fanny packs and visors and they had – you know tubs and tubs full of these beanie babies and they it's were talking creepy. very yeah and they were they would talk very excitedly about the rising secondary market for these animals and how this one you know that they just paid five dollars for was now worth forty dollars but that they had heard rumors it was going to be retired so it might be worth a hundred dollars in a couple months and it was just this really crazy thing that i remember kind of seeing just from having been you know, it flea marks and that kind of thing, and it was really intense, and then it just disappeared, and then I, you know, and it was the weirdest thing. 
My brother is 10 years younger than I am, and um, he he still to this day, if you ask him what was the best Christmas present he ever got, it was this um, Beanie Baby that I got for him off of eBay. I spent all my college money, not all of it, but, I, you know, 50 bucks back in college was a lot of money for me. Yeah. And I bought this. Which one was it? It was the, the end. It was the millennium. Oh, my God, the end bear. The end bear. Yeah. And I got it. Yeah. And, you know, he was like eight or nine at the time he opened the gift. He literally did a lap around the around the house, like a few laps, like screaming, like as if, you know, his team won the World Series. And yeah. now going back to my parents' house just a few weeks ago, they've got like this big Tupperware vat of Beanie Babies collecting mold and dust in the garage. So yeah, I'll no, send I mean, you that I picture. Think, yeah, everyone does. I mean, my, my kind of reintroduction, I had not thought about these in years. And then I was a senior in college at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and I was still going to auctions every week. And I went to this kind of dinky little auction house, and sitting in the back of the room, they had these, like, all these big Rubbermaid bins full of Beanie Babies that they were selling as one lot. And the, and the Beanie Babies themselves weren't that interesting, but it was really this kind of conviction who had ever had assembled the collection that they were doing something really important. So all the Beanie Babies had tag protectors. Some of the bears were in individual Lucite containers, and there were all these price guides and checklists and spreadsheets about what each one was worth. And I think the whole lot sold for like $100 or something. Um, and I remember thinking like, like wanting to know how had this sort of strange thing happened. And then I got home and I Googled it and there was really no kind of postmortem on, on how this had happened. But what, what struck me and made me want to do a story on this and think that there was a story was that, you know, I would never have guessed. I mean, if you, if someone had asked me how much is the guy who created Beanie Babies worth, I would have said, I don't know, $50 million, $60 million, something like that. But I mean, he made about $2 billion on these things. Oh in, in 1999 alone, his adjusted gross income was $670 million. I mean, it was so much bigger than I, than I had realized. And, and really all of it at the height of it, driven by this, this sort of collective dream that these were an investment and not just a toy. I mean, as best I can, you know, from having talked to a lot of retailers and dealers, you know, 70% of the demand was from speculators. These were only nominally a toy. And that, that was what made it so interesting to me. And so what are the correlations? You said this was really metaphoric and really symbolic of the capitalism that we live in today in some ways. What, what were the, the parallels that you found? I think the biggest thing, and it's something, you know, that if you, if you read about the history of, of speculative bubbles, you know, going back to Charles McKay and then, you know, up through, you know, the, the newest edition of Robert Schiller's book, Irrational Exuberance. I mean, the way that speculative bubbles really, they're spread by stories more than anything else. Um, you know, because speculative bubbles sort of by definition are about, you know, investing detached from fundamentals and, and detached from sort of sober analysis. Um, and so, you know, when, when, I, when I sort of tracked down how this thing started in the suburbs of Chicago with a relatively small group of women who were trying to assemble complete sets and sort of were incidentally uh, you know, calling stores all over the country, trying to find the rare pieces that, you know, and trying to figure out, you know, they wanted to assemble complete collections. They didn't even know what a complete collection meant exactly because this was before there was really much of a market for them. But it was the stories of how much this relatively small group of people was paying for the rarest pieces, the kind of spread word 
of a bull market in these animals. And I, and I think, you know, it's not unlike real estate where, you know, in the real estate bubble, what really drove that, and when you, and when you look back to the media coverage, which, which I did while I was working on the book, I mean, was that people were lured into these, into, into asset bubbles by stories of other people getting rich. Charles Kindleberger, the economist, said that there is nothing as dangerous to one's well-being and, and, and sort of sanity is to see a good friend get rich. And I think that that was kind of the moral of the story for me was, was the, the, the sort of destructive length that people are driven to by hearing stories about other people doing well financially. I love the way you think, Zach. You know, you see stories where no one else does. You have a curiosity that uh, leads to great books. And yeah, I, um, of course, many people might know you from your previous works. Uh, Debt for You was a, was a bestseller talking about how you uh, managed to finish college debt free yeah. and pay your way through that. How to be richer, smarter and better looking than your parents was your was your uh, second book, really looking at how to manage your money wisely as a young adult. And, and it came this book arrived sort of after the financial debacle and you know when the sky was falling and everybody yeah. lost their job so it's like we had to really refresh and rethink about money at, at that time and um so all this to say that you you have a sort of a very intellectual uh curiosity a very healthy curiosity about money and how the world works and so i want to kind of go down memory lane a little bit with you and learn kind of what is the what was the genesis for all of this? And maybe start with the question that I ask all of my guests to set the tone for the rest of the interview, which is what do you think is your financial philosophy? Like a money mantra that you either learned as a young kid or that you recently inherited or adopted that helps you make the best decisions with your money. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of how I would distill it to a mantra. I guess the, the thing to kind of back into that, the thing that's always fascinated me and I guess the kind of, because, you know, my books, I guess, all seem very different. But I'm just really, really interested in when people think they're doing something smart but are actually doing something really stupid. And so that's always, I mean, I think all my books are kind of about people making really dumb decisions financially. So my first book was Debt for You. was about, you know, how people were, were signing themselves up for, you know, crippling debt loads while thinking that they were making the right decision when, when of course, they weren't. And then my second book was kind of along those lines. And the Beanie Baby book was about, you know, the stories of people losing, you know, their kids' six-figure college funds hoarding Beanie Babies, thinking that they were going to pay for college with them. And so I, I guess what, you know, if I, if I were to sort of boil it down, it would be to, to realize just how wrong your analysis of financial stuff can be if you're if you're not framing it right, and that you it, you know it isn't just behavioral. Although I mean a lot of it's behavioral, but you know that you really can think that you're doing the right thing and be doing the wrong thing, and that that's where the that's where the education piece comes in. Is that because we just follow the pack? We follow the herd? We Yeah, yeah. totally. I mean, that, that's a lot of it. And, you know, f focusing on the wrong things, um, you know, you know, excess. I mean, there's a reason that every mutual fund ad, you know, has a disclosure and that the past returns are not, you know, not necessarily mm -hmm. a predictor of future results. But, you know, people say that, but I, I think very few people sort of know that. I, I think they, they know that intellectually, but, but the past returns are what drive people's decisions. And so... You know, with the, with the beanie craze, you had people, 
you know, the, the first Beanie Babies had re- risen in value, and of course that didn't mean that the newest ones, which were by then mass-produced, would, but everyone thought they would, um, which of course at the same time guaranteed that they wouldn't. <laughs> so just a quick catch-up, that guy who invented them, you said he was yeah. worth like $2 billion at one point. What? Yeah, still is. <laughs> still is. Okay, so did he have some sort of legal run-ins? Yeah, just a little bit. Just a few. Um, yeah, just a little. He, uh, as a lot of people were at the time, in 1996, when he was, you know, he was a college dropout. He'd studied one year of drama at Kalamazoo College. And then he'd been a toy salesman, gotten fired from that job, and really only became spectacularly rich um, in his 50s, and um, in his early 50s. And as that happened, um he decided that he would put about $100 million in a Swiss bank account and not tell his accountants about it. And so they finally caught up with him, and in 2013, he pleaded guilty in the largest largest bust of of the uh, offshore tax evasion in U.S. history, actually. Um, Pleaded guilty to a felony. Um, He was sentenced to probation. And um, which was well below the federal sentencing guidelines, but the government has, has appealed that that sentence, which is very unusual, and that is still pending. So that there is a chance that he will end up in federal prison. Hmm. Oh, that's quite the end to that story. The end. Yeah, See I mean, how it, I brought this back of, to the end? Yeah. I'm sorry. It's the end, like the Beanie Baby that I bought in college. Exactly. No, I mean, and, and that, you know, I mean. Uh, it's a funny example that even Ty himself was, I think, not immune to the to the idea that this thing was a bubble that had spun out of his control. And so it's funny that you mentioned the end there. Do you know the story behind that there? I just thought it was because, you know, it was the millennial and there was a lot of, um, at the same time, there's a lot of excitement for it, but it's also like this like right. scary time right. in our, in our so, history. I'm sorry? It was a scary time. So the bear was black, which was kind of like a weird Yeah, so, weird so what happened was that the beanie craze was, there were starting to be indications that it was that it was slowing down and that they that the sales were still very strong but they were they were running into problems with it would be newly retired pieces were not appreciating appreciating value the way that they always had and Ty who was this very eccentric obsessive compulsive you know perfectionist I think didn't realize the extent to which this animal that he had created, the Beanie Baby lines, had spun into this thing so far beyond anything he could control. And Ty had this idea, and he called his girlfriend, ex-girlfriend by then, who was running Ty's distribution in the United Kingdom, and he informed her that he was going to get rid of all of the Beanie Babies and stop making Beanie Babies and replace them with this new line called Beanie Kids, which everyone listening to this should do a Google image search. They are absolutely hideous. And Ty's idea was that he would get rid of Beanie Babies and then duplicate with Beanie Kids. And Ty's ex-girlfriend said to him, you know, Ty, the Beanie Kids are ugly. It'll never work. You know, people see it as a stupid stunt. But he announced that he was retiring all the Beanie Babies. And the end there was the bear that he used to kind of make that announcement. And he, you know, went over with his girlfriend at the time over, you know, tons of different poem ideas for the hang tag for how to kind of convince people that he was getting rid of Beanie Babies. And then he he rethought it and decided that he wouldn't get rid of them after all. And he he released a new line of Beanie Babies in the new millennium. But the the end bear kind of encapsulates how 
how frenzied his own thinking had become and how just just like the speculators, he wasn't able to sort of fully comprehend what, what had happened, even though he was the one behind it. I'm on eBay right now. And by the way, these are hideous. Like you said, um, Beanie Kids. Oh, the Beanie Kids. They're like $6.99, oh my... $6. Yeah, no, I mean, they, they had all kinds of problems. I don't know if you can tell, but they have these really weird hairlines. And they, they shipped to the Beanie Kids, and the retailers were complaining that, that the hair came looking really weird. So then Ty was trying to tell all the retailers, you have to brush the hair before you display them. But, but they, they weren't going to do that, and it was a huge flop, and the company lost a lot of money, um, and it was, it was a disaster. And kind of emblematic of how you know, Ty, early in his career, and really right on through the Beanie craze, had been a perfectionist, and, he, and he's gone back to that in a sense, but, you know, he would spend, you know, eight hours on a photo shoot, you know, just for a single stuffed cat for the cover of his catalog, oh and he would personally trim and groom every animal before it shipped in the early days, but, but he actually told people right before he released Beanie Kids, because people were saying, you know, it's ugly, and he told one of his employees, he said, I could put the tie heart on manure, and people would buy it. Oh, so he had, he had really come under the hold of his own, of his own crap um <laughs> and kind of you know he had become in there there was i read a review of the book that was saying that you know ty had become the biggest sort of bubble of everything or surrounding this bubble he had kind of become you know enraptured in his own thing did you reach out for comment or an interview with him i try i i met him once at toy fair i knew someone had told me what time he would be there so i went to his booth and kind of waited for him and um it's not a nice way to say this, but I mean, the, the first thing when you when you see him, he's had a lot of plastic surgery, um, and so I, I was getting him. So I saw him walking over toward his booth, and he, you know, he's seventy years old now. He's a strange-looking man, um, and I, I and you know, he hasn't done an interview since nineteen ninety-six. He's very, very reclusive, kind of has modeled himself after Howard Hughes. But I was able to, you know, catch him, and I, and I talked to him, and I told him that I was doing a book on the Beanie Baby craze. And he said to me, well, the Beanie Babies, he said it was a lot of good and a lot of bad. And if I told you the story, I would just tell you the good, and then it wouldn't be balanced. And I said, well, Mr. Warner, I would you know, talk to other people too. And he said, no, I think it's better if you just talk to other people. And then he just kind of walked away. And well, that that's was, that a was, good story. Yeah, and so that was what I did. But you know, I, I was able to talk to his estranged sister who, just to kind of give you an idea of how he – you know what, what his interactions with people have been like. Um, when I was talking to his sister, she was she had she, his sister has no money and has a lot of medical debt, and she had asked him if she could borrow a thousand dollars because she was being hounded by debt collectors. And Ty, who has a one hundred and fifty million dollar home in Montecito, California, that he built, told her no. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that. That was kind of I mean, in, in telling the story, a lot of it was talking to. You know, people who had who did not have nice things to say about mm. him. Well, we detracted a little bit because the story is just such a fascinating one. But I really want to get back to learning more about you, Zach, personally. Yes. You mentioned earlier about growing up and how you went to these flea markets. And yeah. um, I want to learn a little bit more about your biggest money memory growing up. Like, what was the biggest influence to you financially as a child growing up? God, it's kind of a bummer, but it was that my parents argued about money constantly. I mean, that, that's the thing that jumps out, and I, I wish it was as happy as the Beanie Babies, but no, I mean, it's not. I mean, that, that was my memory, is that mm -hmm. my parents, you know, my mother felt that my dad was irresponsible, um, you know, and that, that was really, 
that that was really um, that was my memory. And 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 how did that manifest? I mean, so you and I had the same experiences growing up too. Money was a big point of contention sometimes like between yeah. my parents. Uh, did you like? Did you have a moment in in your childhood where you're like, I never want to be like that? Or yeah, totally. No, I mean, I wrote about this in my first book a little bit, but. No, I mean, I, I I remember I would like hide and we had this like storage room called the cauldron. My parents would just argue about money and I would hide in there hugging the teddy bear just to bring it back to Beanie Babies. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, it was certainly I, I think it's the reason my parents divorced. I mean, more, more than anything else, I think, was that, you know, just the conflict over over that and the stress and the, and the anxiety, um, you know, and, 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 and no, and totally it was something I. I knew that I didn't didn't want in my life. You write these great books uh, about how to be financial winners, basically, especially young adults who need this advice so much. What would you say, though, to be contrarian, would, was your biggest financial failure, if you ever had my one? Biggest financial failure? Um, God, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I try to be try to be responsible. Um, you know, I guess if it were the, the one that jumps out is that when, when I was in college, I I, I, I mulled getting a condo in South Beach, um, and I didn't because I was concerned that the that the market was you know that the condo associations were in trouble and there was a lot of foreclosures then and it was just very scary, and I decided not to and instead I bought a, another place in Amherst, Massachusetts, which I still have, which I rent out. Um, which has been okay, but you know certainly the returns in Miami have been a lot better. Yeah. You know because I would have been really buying at the bottom. So I think you know I think I was, you know I think scared a little bit just by the kind of headline risk and that and that kind of thing. Where where you know looking back, it's so easy to say that that was the perfect sign. You know that it was time to buy. Um, but you know I, I think it it always is, is, is hard because. You know, when you look at things in hindsight, it's so easy to, to say, oh, yeah, that was a sign you should have bought. But at the time, those risks seemed so real. Um, and then, of course, you know, you look back and you wish you had. So I think that that's one that jumps out. Yeah, real estate is so – you don't want to be speculative, especially now that we know what happens when you are. Right. Yeah, you know, but at the, at the same time, you know, there were – you know, I remember talking to David Bach about it Um I think your friends. I think you've interviewed. He's been on the show. Yeah, he's a friend. Yeah. No, I remember talking to him in maybe 2009 or something, and him saying it was. I was remember the story. He said, you know, that people were going to get really rich buying real estate in that market, and people absolutely did. I mean, that that, that was you know that there were there were there was sort of a window of opportunity in certain markets where if you had the, you know, if you if you had the kind of. Um, Fortitude. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was trying to, that's the right word. Um, yeah, but it, but, you know, but it was not easy. Mm. <laughs> and so, you know, I stuck with, with a lower, you know, with what felt like a lower risk thing in Amherst, you know, where there were no foreclosures really. And, you know, and it's been okay, but I would have made more money. In my yes, <laughs> yes. Well, let's talk success. You've had a lot of financial wins in your young adult life. At, are you even 30 yet? 26. 26. Give me a break. Well, that's good. I mean, amazing. 26 years old and so much accomplished already. What would you say is your proudest so money moment? Proudest so money moment? Um, God, I don't know. Um, 
you know, I, I guess, you know, finding a way to make a career out of writing a book about Beanie Babies, I think I'm proud of. Um, <laughs> you know, it was a story that I really wanted to tell, and it was, you know, it was not easy to get a publisher on board with that, frankly. I mean, it took a lot of, a lot of selling, um, you know, to get, to get them to, to, to realize there was a story there. So, I, I think that's the thing I'm proudest of, is having the, um, you know, just really seeing that through and pushing on it. Would you say this is what you always wanted to do and all the other stuff was just kind of preparing no, you for this? No, I don't this? know. I've never, I've never had a plan, mm-hmm. you know, except that acceptance so far as not having one is one. But I've always, <laughs> I've, I've, I've always tried to do stuff that I thought was interesting and good and, you know, and worthy. And I've never, I've never, I think you've had, you've had a little bit of this too. I mean, you, you never... I feel like as soon as you start trying too hard to kind of cultivate a brand, it becomes kind of inauthentic and people see through it. And, you know, so you, you want to keep it eclectic and I've tried to. And so, and so I think people will look at that and think it's unfocused maybe, but I don't know. I don't really care. (laughs) Good for you. All right. Let's talk habits. I want to know what's your number one habit that keeps your financial outlook, uh, healthy and well-managed. Yeah. Um, I think the number one thing is just reminding myself that the things I enjoy don't really cost a lot of money and that, you know, and that the things that I, you know, that I, you know, cause everyone could always spend more money. Right. And that, but just reminding myself that I don't really want that stuff and that it's not worth it. And that, you know, yeah, my apartment's small, but, but I like it. Um, you know, and whenever there's temptation, you know, when you see another really nice apartment to just you know, realize that, I I think just realizing what's going to make you happier and what isn't. Mm -hmm. And to be 26 and to know that is, I think, so money. I think it's, no, I mean, it's, it's something that, that's something my mother really, I think was helpful with, 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 with drilling into us. Okay. Zach, so money, fill in the blanks. Are we ready? Yes. Okay. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say you won mega hundred million bucks. First thing I would do is uh, I would use the money to launch a ballot initiative to get rid of state lotteries because I, th- I think that's the most <laughs> That is the just... best answer I have gotten. I and have that to they, say, they, they, they just dump. You know, the, which should be a. You know, they take. They, it's essentially a way to lift the tax burden off of the people who should be paying it, i.e., rich people, and you know, use sort of a dirty trick. You know, to get low-income, less-educated people who are the people who pay the lottery, and that's statistically proven, um, you know, to, to kind of pay rich people's taxes for them, it enrages me. So that is what I would do. You have actually gone to task. You have called out reporters for even just putting out a simple headline story about like, hey. You remember that. That's oh, so yeah, funny yeah, yeah. that you're. You went after like a CNN reporter. You're... Yes, you I did. Oh, no, I mean, this, and, and I should say I, I, I have a a pent up vat of venom on this issue. I mean, it really, the, the, the media's kind of cheerleading reporter uh, reporting on the lottery. I mean, if you really look at it, it's such a scam. It is so evil. Um, so <laughs> that's the best answer. I think um, it's so meta. I love it. The, well, that's what we try. Yeah. The one thing that I spend my money on that makes my life easier or better is Better. I oh, I've been asked this question many times, and I always give the same answer. Everyone always makes fun of me. I love scented candles, <laughs> um, so I buy huge numbers of scented candles. And this is a funny story about this. So 
I had given Ron Lieber at the New York Times an idea for a story that he ended up using. I got an email from him saying, you know, that story was great. I need to send you a gift. And he remembered that I like candles. So he sent me, Ron Lieber sent me this like $90 candle from Neiman Marcus because his mother works there, I guess. And so I get this candle. It's like really small and $90. And I have not lit it yet because I am afraid that this candle, if it lives up to the billing, will, will turn me into someone who needs $90 candles. Oh, my gosh. Ron so Lieber, I, personal finance columnist at the New York Times sending you $90 candles. Uh, <laughs> I've had him on the show. He's fantastic. Oh, he's great. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Um, so so I, I have not lit it because I am terrified that That's I will hilarious. like it too much. So it's just sitting in the closet. You know what, though? you got to live a little, Zach. Just light the candle for all... You but know, then what if I actually simple. like it and I start, because the thing is, I, if I'm home, I have a candle. Well, you thing. just tell Ron that you'll keep feeding him really good stories if he will in, in exchange. That is the compromise. He just needs to subscribe me to candles. Yeah, exactly. Okay, good. Got it. All done. right, done. Biggest guilty pleasure that you spend a lot of money on? Uh, it's kind of, hmm, guilty pleasure. I, I don't really believe in guilty pleasure. I think if you enjoy something, you should just enjoy it. Um, What would I say? I guess art. I buy a lot of art. All right. What kind of art are you into? I like like Art Deco stuff, illustration mm-hmm. stuff. I actually just I'll send you a photo of these. I framed some really cool. I bought I bought all these old um, Harper's Bazaar covers from like the 1920s. They just framed them. They look really great. Awesome. Get them right now. So. <laughs> One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is. Um. God, I think you know. I always tell people that my dad taught me about money the way that an alcoholic teaches his kids about drinking <laughs> um so I, I think i think that i learned you know I, I think the stuff i learned about money growing up was very real and very good and i think because my parents i think you know lacked the um the self-awareness to really shield us from the issues as much as maybe they should have but i think in hindsight it was probably good i mean i think you know I mean, this is what ron's book's about you know is that you know when you hide your kids from your money issues it often is not good there's a lot of learning to be had there. Absolutely. And when I donate money, I'd like to give to blank because? Libraries. Nice. Yeah, no, I actually, Ron and I were just talking about this too. Um, yeah, no, I think Ron did this too. Ron and I gave money to the Ferguson Public Library, um, which was fun. That was what we did for our sort of holiday giving, um, which was cool. Um, no, I think it's, I, I think it's, you know, I think you get a lot of bang for your buck there. There's not a ton of bureaucracy. It's something that's available to everyone. It's free. So I, I, I am a huge fan of libraries. Everyone should donate to libraries. I like that. Um, I like that a lot. And then last but not least, I'm Zach Bissonette and I'm so money because... God, I don't know that I can you call yourself so money. Or you can, you can on this show. It's right. the only place you can All do right, it. All right, cool. Um, I'm so money. Uh, I mean, I guess I'm still, I think of it as an accomplishment that I was able to spend, you know, two years of my life reporting on the Beanie Babies craze. I would say so. Yeah. You had some, some money in the bank to let you live, do that freely. Yeah. And I think that's cool. So there we go. <laughs> Everyone run and go buy the great Absolutely. Beanie multiple Baby copies. Bubble. Multiple copies. Give them away as gifts, um, especially yeah. if you grew up in the 90s and, uh, you know, 2000s, you have a, um, a memory. Everyone's got a Beanie Baby story. I think that's what makes this, uh, this book such a, a, a one that connects so much with, with people. So thank you very much, Zach Bissonette. Thanks so much. This is a blast. 
That's a wrap. Thanks so much to Zach. If you'd like to learn more about him, check out his new book, The Great Beanie Baby Bubble. And you can follow him on Twitter at Zach Bissonette. We have all this info and links at somoneypodcast.com. And there, of course, you can find the transcript and the comments from this episode and all previous ones. And please keep your questions coming. As you know, every weekend is Ask Farnoosh on So Money, where I respond to your questions, your feedback submitted on somoneypodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh and there you can ask away. And as a reminder, if you'd like the chance to win a 15-minute money session with me, just hop onto iTunes and leave a review for this show. Every Saturday at the top of the show, I select one new reviewer to receive that 15-minute money session with me. And I've been doing this now for a while, and it's a great way for us to connect one-on-one with any issues you've got about money or career. And so if you're interested in that, please Go to iTunes and leave a review. It's actually the best way to support this show to keep it out of obscurity and listed well in the iTunes store. Thanks so much again to my guest, Zach Bissonette. Thank you to you for tuning in. Hope to see you back here tomorrow. In the meantime, hope your day is so money.